and asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that that's what they requested. They didn't request for Jesus to teach them how to preach, and he didn't request for Jesus to teach him how to heal. They'd already done some of that in the first sending of the 72, but they specifically asked Jesus how to what? Pray. That's how important that was. The second thing we see from this is, is that Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, also made prayer a priority. So that tells us how, how important prayer is. And I, I confess to you last Sunday that probably one of the, one of the um, ongoing weaknesses in my life as a, as a believer has been a consistent, healthy prayer life. And that's probably not the best confession to make to you, but I just want you to know that. It has been difficult for me primarily because, because I'm a doer. Uh, those of you that, that know me pretty well know that I, I, I'm, I'm a man of action. Amen? Y'all need to be a lot stronger with that. Amen? Okay. I'm a man, I'm a man of action. I, I do things. I get up in the morning at, at, at 5.30, 6 o'clock, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing things. I drive my wife crazy because I'm always doing something. But we have to stop occasionally, and we have to take time to do what? Pray. We have to. We have to pray. Now, there's some things that I don't have to pray about. I'm going to tell you right now, there's some things I don't have to pray about. Paul says pray over all things, and I believe that. I absolutely believe that. But sometimes in the heat of the moment, I have to act, and I don't really have time to pray. Now, while I'm going in, right, you may say, dear Lord, help me not really mess this up. You ever done that? Or save me from really, really making, making this more of a problem than it needs to be. If I see somebody, you know, that, that's struggling with something, if I see somebody that's being beaten up by a stronger person, or I see a woman that's being beaten up by a man, I don't have to ask a question. I'm going in there and, and trying to stop that situation. If I see a child that's in trouble, I'm going in there to try to rescue that child from that trouble. I don't have to pray about that. Okay? I know I've got to do that. But Jesus is saying that, that, that we need to take time to pray in our lives. And, and I've told, as I've told you many times, the, the simplest things and the times where it should come somewhat naturally, doing it comes naturally to me, is in the morning when you wake up, in the evening when you go to bed, and then over meals. And a lot of times that will catapult you into a prayer life that should hopefully grow as you get older and as you mature in the Word of God. But what we have here today is we have a, a model prayer from Jesus. Now just to recap a little bit from last week, we looked at Matthew 6, a few verses, and he kind of gives you some warnings he kind of helps you. He kind of gives you the negative example first. I, and I really love that about Jesus, that he kind of tells us what not to do at the beginning and then tells us what to do. Kind of like in the books of Revelation, he, he, he gives, he gives the, the churches in Revelation an encouraging word first and then gives them encouragement. So he gives you that contrast of the good and the bad, what to do and what not to do. And so here he says, when you pray, he says, do not be like the what? The hypocrites. I mean, if Baptist churches have been characterized by a word throughout my life on the negative side, hypocrite would probably be the top five word that I've heard most of my life given to me for excuses by people that don't go. And a lot of times there's a lot of merit to that because there are people that are in churches that are hypocrites, but at the same time, there's hypocrites where? At Walmart, there's hypocrites at the workplace. So don't not go to church because you think there's hypocrites there because chances are you have been a hypocrite yourself at some point, amen? So, so let's not use that as an excuse to not go to church, but at the same time, let us not be hypocrites, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not be. 
And, and living in this world and pulled 40 different directions by the world, I understand how hard that is sometimes to not be hypocritical. This, this America that we love and live in, and, and I love and I live in it, it, it is full of temptations, it is full of distractions, it is full of things that, that Satan can use to pull you away from the main thing, and that is God, amen? And some of these are good things. Some of these can be very good things that pull you away from, from, your, from your worship and your time with God, okay? So don't be a hypocrite. He says your heart of intent, the heart of intent in your prayer must be true, don't be an actor. Don't be a pretender. He goes a little bit further, and he's got the Pharisees in mind when he says this, but he says, you know, don't, don't be one that prays in the open and in the marketplace and standing in the synagogues so that people can see you and think you're super spiritual. To try to basically advance your selfish ambition by coming across like you're super spiritual being seen by men. He says, don't be like that. There's nothing wrong with that. You can have the right heart and do that. Amen? I mean, we see that every week here. I, I mean, I, I, personally, I personally select the people that come up here and do the welcome and the people that do the benediction and the people that do the offertory prayer. And I'm coming for you too, amen? <laughs> I'm coming for you too one of these days. So be, be reading, be praying. So don't be a hypocrite, be, be, be true to God when you pray. He says those that, that do this kind of thing, that, that are trying to advance themselves through this hypocritical show of spirituality, Christ says they have received their reward in full. That's, that's a scary thing to hear Jesus say. So Jesus, what do you mean they've received their, word, their, their reward in full? Because they're not, they're not dead yet, they're still alive, and that's exactly what he means. He means that while they are living, this praise that they are receiving from men in the synagogues and on the street corners because they're out there trying to persuade people that they're super spiritual, that's the only reward that they get, is to be seen by other people right here praying, pretending like they're super spiritual. There's nothing more for them in the life to come because they're frauds, is basically what Jesus said. It's horrifying to hear Jesus talk like that. So if you want to do it right, Jesus says, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will, will reward you. And I think that's really good, a good word from Jesus. Because who's going to see you in your room with the door closed? Who? God and God alone. He sees you. He sees the sincerity of your heart. And not only that, but, but when you pray in secret just to God, only God hears those prayers. And so if something that you pray actually comes to pass, you know for a fact that God himself has answered that prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with the congregation member hearing your prayer and them doing something nice or trying to fulfill that need. There's nothing wrong with that. But how much greater of an encouragement is it and a spiritual leap forward in faith to know that you prayed privately and something that you prayed for privately that only you and God know actually comes to pass. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Go and shut the door and pray privately to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you.
And again, why the secrecy aspect? Well, there's nothing to gain from anyone. Nobody sees you do that. Unless you got cameras in your house, you know? Nobody's seeing that. You're not impressing anyone. You pray secretly to God. It's just secret. And then verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And the, the, the key phrase in my mind there is, is that it's not about quality. It's not about quantity of words, right? It's not about quantity. Not just go on and on and on and on and on like the prophets of Baal did when they were going against Elijah. Used that example last week. Many words and cutting themselves and just getting into this hysteria and praying. It's not just about this, this big show going on and on and on. What is it about? It's not about quantity. It's about what? Quality. Boldness, sincerity before God, in secret, pouring your heart out before him and asking God. Now, again, there's nothing, there, there's nothing like, like wrong with, with, with praying a long time because one, one of the examples from history that was always brought up with us at seminary was Charles Spurgeon. Y'all remember who he is, right? Well, Charles Spurgeon, during this time frame in his life called the downgrade controversy, Spurgeon was the only conservative voice in an ocean of liberalism that was trying to destroy God's word and destroy the witness for Christ. And during that time in his memoirs, many scholars have dug out and, and read, read, wrote books on this that Spurgeon would pray hours at a time. Hours. Four, five, six, seven, eight hours. And I certainly believe that there is a time and place for that. If the, if the situation calls for it and the Spirit has put the conviction on your heart and you believe you need to do that, by all means do not hear me say that doing, doing, praying like that's wrong because I don't believe it is. But what I do believe that Jesus is saying is that the, your regular prayer life does not have to be some showy, orchestrated, well-worded whatever. Go to the Lord and lay your heart bare to him. That's what he's saying. Publicly, if you're, let, if you're asked to or, or you're led to, but your regular, your regular prayer life should be private in a closed door secretly with God. That's the sustenance. That's your daily sustenance is your private prayer with him. So quality, not quantity. So the teaching points that we got from Matthew, don't be like the hypocrites that use prayer to advance their selfish ambition. Most of your prayers should be in private where only God knows what you have prayed. And then you don't have to heap up empty phrases and go on and on and on to try to impress God because guess what? God already knows what you need, hallelujah. I mean, if there's one question I have like kind of sort of struggled with people ask me, well, if God already knows what I need and he's God and he knows everything, why do I have to pray to him? That's a fair question. And what do I say back? Because the Bible says so, <laughs> right? It's that simple. Because he is your father, he is your spiritual father, and he wants you to pray to him because that is one of the primary ways that you develop a relationship with him through profession of faith in Jesus Christ first, which begins, initiates through prayer and repentance, and then on a regular basis, you praying and talking to him is how you get to know God and he gets to know you, or, I mean, for a, from a human perspective. God already knows you inside and out from the foundation of the world. You know what I'm trying to say. 
So the model prayer, let's, let's begin with that today, moving forward. So there's your recap to try to get you up to speed so that everybody's together with where we're headed. So this is Matthew's version still in verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this, Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So very, very similar to the Lord's Prayer that we all know that most of us can recite as we did last week before we left worship. So we have two, two primary emphasis, two major two major themes in these few verses. The first one is God's holiness and his kingdom. God's holiness and his kingdom. And the second one is his provision to us as his people. His provision to us as his people. So Jesus trains the apostles and therefore us to speak of God the Father in terms of whose father? Our father. Our Father. He is Jesus' Father, and He is our Father. Can you hallelujah amen that today? I mean, is that, I mean, you have got the, the, the Ancient of Days. He has several names in the Scripture. Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, Ancient of Days. And He, through Jesus, is our spiritual Father. <laughs> the one that holds up the universe the one that sustains the very breath that you breathe right now. You can call him Daddy, Abba, Father, our Father, because he is your spiritual Father. The life-giving God of the universe, you know him personally through Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you're a Christian. Now, when we say our Father, Let's be sure one thing, it, it's, we need to be sure we understand what Jesus means. God the Father, and this was an ancient heresy that, that, that happened a long time ago by a guy named Arius. And Arius started this teaching that, that Jesus was a created being and that he only became the Christ at the baptism of John the Baptist when John the Baptist baptized him. That's not true, that, that, that's, that's heresy. But it would be real easy in, in a human mindset to think, well, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I mean, Jesus was born through Mary, and then he became the Christ when he was born. No. How long has Jesus been the Christ? Forever. Forever. He was co, or was, is co-eternal, co-powerful with the Father as, as long as anything has ever been in existence, they have always been there, the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I know that is extremely hard to understand as finite human beings. It has been, it's been tried to be explained a million different ways that, that human beings, are, you know, we, they're, they're, we're created in his image and we're, we're mind, body, spirit. There's been several different ways 
that that's been tried to be explained. I don't know that we will ever completely explain it until we go to be with him. But he is our father and he created us and he, Jesus is, is different. He's different, but he's the same. He came in the form of a man through the Virgin Mary, but, but his daddy wasn't Joseph, amen? His daddy wasn't a cursed man. His daddy was the father, the heavenly father. And, and you, have to, you have to believe that and you have to understand that because if Jesus had been just a normal man like us, meaning that he had an earthly father, he would have been cursed just like we are. He would have been a sinner just like we are and his death on Calvary's cross would have done nothing for us. But because... He was born of the Spirit because he was born of the Spirit and the flesh. I mean, he came through Mary's womb, but the baby was put in Mary's room by the Holy Spirit. So when he was born, he was sinless. He bypassed the curse, but yet he was human because he was Mary's son and God's son. So it's, 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 it's incredible, incredibly important that you understand that. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. So where is our Father? Did you notice that throughout your life that most of the time you knew right where your daddy was? Can y'all say amen? Most of it. I mean, there are exceptions. I know that some homes were very broken from the very beginning. I understand that. But, but for the norm, most people know exactly where their father is. When I was growing up, 99% of the time, I knew exactly where Raymond Hazard was. Because even with all his imperfections and all his problems, he loved us, he cared for us, he provided for us, and he was always home. Always, for the most part. But this other father's different. God the Father is different. Where is he? Heaven. Where has he always been? Heaven. Daddy was on earth. He was here with me for, for years. But God the Father is in heaven and always has been and always will be. And he, he keeps it all perfectly ordered. Keeps it all perfectly ordered. He lives, he lives in, in heaven and, and it's a, a, a beautiful place. It is, it is everything that you could imagine that it is and more. And that's where he dwells with the Holy Host. Matthew 5.48 says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 1.3 says, blessed be the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're blessed here too. Here, who, who believes they're blessed here, amen? You're blessed here, and I mean, no doubt. But our time here is eventually gonna end and we're gonna be with him. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the next part, which, which means to, that his name is holy, to regard his name as holy, sanctified, and set apart. I want you to listen to these names. Now, now when I give you these names, please don't draw any conclusions about what I'm trying to do with this list, okay? If, if there's two names side by side, I'm not trying to, draw, to say they're the same or anything like that. I just want you to listen to the name. I just came up with some names for you, okay? And what I want you to do is as I read these names, I want your, your mind to just, to just let it create what it creates when I read the names. Pocahontas. Margaret Thatcher. 
Daniel Boone. Put this one in there for you, Tennessee folks. Davy Crockett. Wasn't he from East Tennessee? Okay. Thomas Edison. Eli Whitney. Martin Luther. Edie Amin. Benito Mussolini. Fidel Castro. John F. Kennedy. Kim Jong-il. Hirohito. Garth Brooks. Steve Martin. Eddie Van Halen. Michael Jackson. Ted Bundy. Vladimir Lenin. Adolf Hitler. Mother Teresa. Harrison Ford. Elvis Presley. There is a relation to this next one. Dick Peach. Amen. <laughs> so as I read those names, as I read those names, your mind, who knew all the names? Raise your hand. Okay. Who knew most of the names? Raise your hand. Okay. So as you heard those names, your mind brought forward a caricature of those people based on what they did in this life, correct? You know what that's called? A reputation. A reputation. Some of those people had fantastic reputations. Some of them had bad reputations. Some of them had monstrous reputations. So when we think about the name Jesus Christ, and we think about the name Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, there is a sense of the transcendent and the holy that no other name brings you. Can you amen that? Yeah. Hallowed be your name. Nobody else comes close to Jesus. Nobody comes close to God. Reputations represent character, and character represents who you really are on the inside, and your name carries with it a reputation, and reputations are very hard to build, and even harder to what? Keep even harder to keep. And all it takes, all it takes is one mistake, right? My daddy used to say this all the time. It takes one uh-oh to cancel out a thousand what? Attaboys. One uh-oh and all the attaboys you've done get wiped out. That's how hard it is to hold on to a reputation. And our God and Jesus Christ have held his reputation for over 2,000 years. And he will hold his reputation for all eternity because hallowed be his name. You ever known somebody that ruined their reputation? Just ruined it? Just ruined it? 
Maybe they got it back in time. I mean, if, if, they're, if they're young enough when it happens, you know, there's time for them to put enough space between that accident and the end of their life to where they can kind of redeem themselves. But if the person is, is kind of older and they, and they have a massive mess up, sometimes they never can regain, regain their reputation. They never can regain it. Proverbs 10.1 says, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. His name is special, his name is sacred, his name is holy, and it is so much so that when the Israelites came out of, of Egypt, he established a system of law to make certain that they understood how holy his name was. And one of the commandments in Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's how holy, that's how important, that's how monumental the name of our God is. That's why we don't need to be hypocrites, amen? Amen. Next verse, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now theologically, this verse falls into what we call inaugurated eschatology. You've heard that word before. I know you probably hate hearing those words from me. But it's, it's a very important word because scholars a long time ago were trying to figure out this weird place we're in at the, as the church. I mean, Jesus has come, and when he came, he said the kingdom of God has come, and he's the son of God, and he brought the kingdom of God, but yet sin's still everywhere, and there's evil everywhere, and evil's rampant, and then there's a second coming. So what about this middle, this middle part here between his first and second advent? What is going on? Inaugurated eschatology. That's what's going on. The kingdom of God has already been ushered in, but it has not been realized in its fullness. That was the problem with Corinth. Corinth had an over-realized eschatology. They thought, they thought that everybody was in their resurrected state now. I hope to God that is not true, amen? Because if it is, oh my goodness, I'm in deep trouble, amen? Are you in deep trouble? We're all in deep trouble. Inaugurated eschatology. All the miraculous things Jesus did were evidence of the reality that the kingdom of God had come to earth in Jesus. However, the kingdom of God did not come in fullness in that sense, that it is currently established on the earth and that is obvious, obvious, that, his, that, his, that the kingdom is not established in fullness on earth yet. Not like it will be in the millennium, in the thousand year reign. Not like that. It's not that way yet. We know that. In this time right now is the church age. The Bible describes them as the last days. And during this time, during this time, what is the primary organism on earth that is called to be the prophetic voice and Jesus' hands and feet on earth? Say it in unison on three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One more time. One, two, three. The church! Yes, thank you. Thank you. You are important. You are important. You are Jesus' hands and feet on this earth. 
The only way people will know that there is a Messiah is if you tell them. That is our job and our mission in this life. Between the first coming and the second coming, we, we have this authority that we see in the New Testament called binding and loosing. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And you will be my rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And what you bind on earth will be bound in, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in. Yeah. Our job as the church of Jesus Christ, is to show this lost, wicked world what heaven looks like. How good of a job are we doing with that? I'm going to save, save it. Verse 11. He feeds us. He forgives us, and he leads us in the interim. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. He feeds us. <laughs> Pretty simple, isn't it? And how does he feed us? Give us this day our daily bread. Yep, daily bread. So, Lord, we are supposed to trust you to provide food for us on a daily basis. I mean, could you imagine depending solely on God to miraculously provide you enough food to feed you and your family on a daily basis for a week? How about a month? I've got one better than that. How about for 40 years in the desert without plowing a stone? It was called what? Yeah. Manna. It was called manna. Exodus 16, 31. We'll jump to the end since we're running out of time. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a hab habitable land, and they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Grumbling to Moses, he sent quail in the morning, and then later he said, you go out, you get exactly what you need for one day. They go out in the morning time, the dew was kind of on the, on, the, on the ground, and after a certain period of time, that dew turned into, the Bible says, would look like coriander bread, and it tasted phenomenal, and they went out there and they collected just enough for how long? One day. For their whole family, children and, and the, however many people were in their family. And then on Saturday, over the weekend for the Sabbath, they were supposed to collect how much? Two days, but they weren't supposed to collect more than that. And those that did collect more than that, what happened to them? What happened to that stuff? It became stinky and rotten. You think any of them ate that? Amen? Probably not. I may have, according to Angie. Amen? Because I eat stuff that's old in the fridge. Guys, can I get a witness? Who eats stuff old in the fridge? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Just figured you'd get a kick out of that. So then we have to make the New Testament jump. So right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the 12 travel back across the Sea of Capernaum, 
and Jesus preached the bread of life sermon. Many followed Jesus back across and pushed him to perform another sign of the proof of his power, and he answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? He says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it, is not, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my who? Father, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Give us this our daily bread, this bread from heaven, and the bread from heaven is who? It is Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, obviously, he means daily provision. I'm not saying he doesn't mean that, but he means both. He means both, because in another time, in that same, that same area, he said, if you do not, what, drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can have what? No part of me. Did he mean literally his flesh and blood? No. He meant his teaching. He meant him. That's what he meant. That's what he meant. So, feed us. Forgive us. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others, I'm going to jump down a little bit to the end, because I believe it's related. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Listen to me very carefully, Baptist Church, Parkway Baptist Church Christians. You need to get this. If you don't hear anything else today, you need to hear what I'm about to say. Your spiritual health in this life depends on your ability to truly forgive people. It is critical. That is why Jesus puts three verses on that. That is why Paul spent the majority of his time fighting for that unity in the Jewish and Gentile church. Constantly infighting, never forgiving. Church split, church split, church split, church split, church split. We have to forgive. He led the way. Jesus led the way. Loving folks that put him on Calvary's cross <laughs> while he's on the cross, dying and writhing in pain. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do not hold this against them. Paul, do not hold this against them. Forgiveness. Because I'm going to tell you what. If you don't forgive as a believer, your heart is going to become calloused and hard and bitter and mean and judgmental it's going to be terrible. And all the blessing and all the grace and all the freedom and all the wonder and joy of being in the church of Jesus Christ, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You must, you must forgive. You must. 
as hard as it sounds. And I understand how hard it is. I know that you've been hurt, for heaven's sake. My wife and I have been hurt so much in the church. I could write you a book. Nobody would buy it, but I'd write it because it's not positive enough. It's not going to be positive today or just completely scandalous. Nobody wants to really hear the truth, you know. You got to forgive. Feed us, forgive us, and then lead us. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in your sovereignty, this, now this is, you, you get all kind of people, you hear all different kind of things. God wouldn't lead us into temptation. No, he, he wouldn't lead you into temptation. God doesn't do that. We know that for a fact. But he will lead you into a trial, yes? He'll lead you into that. And so, the, the sense of this passage is really, in your sovereignty, God, just to give you a, a hazard paraphrase, in your sovereignty, God, help us avoid drifting into situations that will tempt us, thereby delivering us from evil. Now, I can say that because I've got some passages to back this up with. First of all is James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, right? You've heard that passage before. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but he does put you through trials, tests and trials. Matthew 5, 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, what do you do with it? You tear it out and throw it away. You've heard this, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What everyone, how we have historically, the interpretation of that passage has been that Jesus is speaking in, a, in, a, in hyperbole, which means drastic example to give you a graphic example to make a point that is burned into your mind. Obviously, he doesn't mean to gouge out your eyes if you're lusting, because then, <laughs> good grief, what you gonna do, amen? But what he does mean is, don't put yourself in circumstances where you know you are likely to transgress into sin. So take that, take what it is that you may be tempted to look at and tear it away so that your eyes can't see it. If you know that, 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 that you've got a drinking problem and that you had a drinking problem one time in your life, where should you not go on Friday and Saturday nights? Right, to a bar. If your marriage is in trouble and your wife thinks that you're fooling around on her, the last thing in the world you need to, go, to do is go to a women's workout place and hang out for an hour, amen? Right, you just, you just don't, I mean, that's stupid. So Jesus is saying, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. He'll always give you an out. God will always give you an out. And you have to be smart about your life, places that you go and things that you do. Because I can promise you, a lot of the people that you call friends, now, now you know, I, I, I stomp these two words to death in the church. You just, have to, you, just have to just, you just have to deal with it, okay? But I think two of the most overused meaningless words said by church people today is friend and love. I don't think we have a clue what, these two, what those two words mean. We throw, well, he's my friend. Well, she's my friend. Really? How, how do you know that? I mean, have you been through, through trials and tribulations with this person? And have they stuck by you through thick and thin? Have, have, they, have they fed you when you were sick? Have they brought you stuff when you were in need? Have there been severe conflict and you were able to sit down one-on-one and apologize to each other and reconcile with each other and, and move on with your life? 
Or did they write you off and leave? I mean, I mean seriously, are, are you really a friend or are you just an, 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 an acquaintance? Friend in love. Friend in love. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last is this parable. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to hit it really fast. Go to, uh, back to Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, now this is, this is like the application, the final application he gives to us to kind of seal the deal on what he's trying to say in this prayer about the nature of God as compared to, um, as compared to who this person is going to call a friend. Okay, so I set you up for this parable. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, honey, get up and give this guy some bread so he will shut up and get out of here because he's going to wake up the whole house, right? That's impudence. That's what he means by that, okay? And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And what's the answer to that question? None, none would do that, none. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That is the God that you serve. It doesn't matter what time of night it is, amen? It don't matter where you are, it don't matter what you're doing, it doesn't matter what kind of crisis you're in or what kind of needs you've got. He is God your Father, and you can go to him boldly and ask him for anything that you need because he is your God. That's what Jesus is saying. This guy here that you're calling a friend, what is he really not? He's really not your friend. Because I tell you what, the people that I call friends... They can call me any time of night or day. They can come to the door of my house any time or night or day. And if I have what they need, I, I will give it to them or I will find somebody that's got it and I won't sleep until it's done. That's a friend. It's sacrificial. Jesus said, what greater love is there that a man may lay down his life for his who? Friends. Y'all are getting fainter and fainter and fainter. Are y'all okay? Okay. Y'all tired? I, it is time, I know. Now let me, let me do one thing and then we're done. We gotta take the prosperity gospel out of this passage because this, is the, the, this, this passage right here with Jesus is completely abused, completely abused, all right? <clears throat> I've been asking God for a Humvee, Humvee for, for 20 years and guess what's not in my driveway? A Humvee, okay? It, wealth and riches is not, what, what, the context of this parable even, what is it in the context of? Technically, you could go back and say daily bread. Technically, you could say daily bread. So, so that's not what this is about. Now, if you have a serious need, 
serious need, God is there to listen to you. James 1, 1 through 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You do not have because you do not ask. You do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So why are you asking? What are you asking for? Where is the desire for this prayer? Where does it come from? The prayer that Jesus gave us this example was to feed a friend who was traveling. That, that's totally acceptable. Totally acceptable. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, according to his will, he hears us. You have to take all these passages together if you're going to develop a theology of prayer. All of them. You can't just pull one out of context and say, well, I'm going to build everything on this prayer. He says to ask him for anything I want, he's going to give it to me. No, that's not what he means. That's not what he means. Not what he means. Finally, you see at the end there in verse 13, he says, Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Turn to Romans 8 for our final passage. This is kind of the, the gold nugget in the scripture about prayer for us in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Did you hear that? You read it again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So who's he talking to? Who's weak? All of us. Himself included. He says, helps us. Paul means himself and the whole church. You want to argue with Paul? Go right ahead. I'm not arguing with him. I'm believing him helps us in our weakness, for we, Paul meaning himself, do not know what to pray for as we ought. Why would that be? Because we don't ultimately know exactly, precisely, for sure, what God's will for our life is. We know generally, but we don't know specifically. So sometimes we pray, and, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not right. That's a fact, based on what Paul's saying here. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you understand what that means? I'm gonna, we're going to close with this. That means that even when you're praying, even when you're praying, if you're praying for something that is outside the will of God, God will take that prayer, conform it to his will, and answer accordingly. Do you, do you understand that? That's why when I prayed for a Humvee back 10 or 15 years ago, he gave me a used 2007 town and country van. Amen? I mean, seriously. That's your God. He knows. He knows. You, better than you could ever know yourself, way better. He knows exactly what you need. And if you will be faithful and pray and be a humble servant and follow him and be obedient to his word and continue walking with him in the light that he has given you, I promise you, you will come to understand blessing and his will and his grace better than you ever have in your life. I, I am as serious as I can be about that. Not everybody's going to get it. Not everybody's going to understand you.
Some people are going to think you're a religious fanatic. They're going to think, man, that guy's, he, man, the, well, I, I get tired of listening to that, to, that, to that word, to that word, you know. Well, all you're going to hear is that word from me, amen. I mean, you can't get tired of hearing the word of God. You can't. In fact, if you do, I would say, I would say maybe that unforgiveness thing we were talking about before, that, that maybe, maybe there's some spiritual unhealthiness going on in your life where you kind of love all these warm and fuzzy, wonderful passages over here that talk about all the transcendence and all the marvels and the miracles and the healings and all that. But when it comes over here and we start talking about God's judgment and God's discipline and the hard way and all those types of things, well, I don't want to hear all that. Brother and sister, you're not spiritually healthy. The Bible has to be a balance of both. And the Bible says time and time and time again, if you are his child and you are trying to live a godly life, you are going to have difficulty and hardship in this life, period. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your prayer. And Lord, it's been a great study for me uh, as your humble, unworthy servant to to help me over the past several weeks, Lord, because I, I have carried a lot of guilt uh, in my own life because I just don't think that my prayers measure up, but, and I still absolutely need to do better as we all probably do, but, but Father, you have made it very clear, very clear, <laughs> that if your spirit's in us, you've got us, you've got us. We're your child and you're gonna steer us one way or another to the completion of your will and the completion of our lives. And so, Lord, I just ask today that in these final moments that you would bring the conviction where it needs to be in our lives, that perhaps if there's someone here that has never made a profession of faith in your son, Jesus Christ, this altar is always open for that, and that they would maybe initiate through the conviction of your spirit and the power of the word to cry out to you in the silence of their own heart that they need you that they are a sinner and that they want to repent and come to belief, turn from their sin and come into the family of God. And so Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name.